0: You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. I mean, it was so awesome to be in the presence of God in worship. And so I just want to challenge all of us to, before we dive in, to stay in that place, that awareness of His presence. Because just because the music stopped, His presence didn't stop His presence is here with us and we want to engage with him. So if you could all bow your heads with me, let's just pray um, and dedicate this time to him. So God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. We ask that this morning you would make us more aware than ever of your spirit in us, upon us, and all around us. God, we ask that we would be able to recognize, respond to and release your presence in this place And I just declare an open heavens over every individual to continue to encounter you personally as I speak so that they would leave this place truly marked. Amen. So a couple of months ago, I actually decided to do a word study on the term presence in Hebrew. Um, But before I even discovered its meaning, I um, uncovered this really cool revelation that I wanted to share with you. So I found that presence is one of just a few Hebrew nouns that is actually plural. So it's plural in its grammatical form, even though it's singular conceptually. So this had me curious, so I dug in to see what those other words were. So in addition to presence, these plural words were life, water, and heavens, Now, if that doesn't point us to our triune God with the beautiful Trinity and his character, I don't know what does. I just thought that was so amazing. But eventually, I did learn what the Old Testament word for presence was in Hebrew, and it's panim. And this is actually directly translated to mean face, or in Hebrew, that'd be faces. So sometimes the Hebrew word ayin would be used and that was referring to the eyes. But it wasn't until about a week later that the significance of this discovery truly impacted me. When Pastor Drew had our staff read this book called The Other Half of Church, which I would highly recommend, um, while I was reading, I came across this entire chapter that was directly linking the face of Jesus, the literal face of God to the joy-filled life transformation that all of us are seeking. And in this chapter, neurotheologian, and yes, that is a real thing, by the name of Jim Wilder and spiritual formation pastor Michael Hendricks, they explained how joy is primarily transmitted through the face and especially through the eyes. And then secondarily through the voice, it says, our brains look specifically to the face of another person to find joy. And this is what fills up our emotional gas tank. The face, they say, is key. So if we aren't encountering the face of God when we read scripture or encounter his presence, we are neglecting what makes his presence real and personal to us. You see, it's not just goosebumps or a rushing wind. It's vital that we recognize presence is a person, a person with a face that looks at you with delight and wants to connect with you personally so that joy can be manifested in you. So we are gonna buckle up and dive deep as we go into this topic of the presence of God. We're gonna start all the way back in the Old Testament and work our way to present day. So if you remember in Genesis, Adam and Eve, they got to experience that face-to-face connection with God until their sin required them to be removed from the garden of Eden. But the God that we serve, he was not about to be separated from his own children because of his extravagant love. So generation after generation, the Lord would look for someone who would establish his presence among man so that he could dwell with his children by whatever means necessary. So in the same way, God needs someone in your city and in your neighborhood, in your workplace, who's going to recognize, respond to, and release his presence on earth. So in Exodus, we read about one man's ability to recognize and respond to God and how it opened a door for the Lord to tangibly dwell among his beloved. So beginning in chapter 3, we read how Moses walked past a burning bush. And honestly, that wouldn't have been all that odd in a desert climate. However, the bush was not being consumed by the fire. And so Moses saw that this was supernatural and he turned aside to give attention to it. And that's when the Lord first gave him the commandment to lead the Israelites out of slavery into Egypt to the land that he had promised them. And so Moses, he obeyed despite his many, many reservations. And then, after escaping Egypt in chapter 19, the Israelites, they camped near Mount Sinai. And the Lord had that face to face encounter, and he spoke to Moses on the mountain, making his covenant with Israel. And then in chapter 25, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive an offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. And you can put this on the screen. So he goes on to describe the specific offerings that he desired from them, and then in verse eight he says, then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And then in chapter 40, Moses sets up the tabernacle and brought the Ark of the Covenant which actually housed the presence of the living God. He brought it into it and it says, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. You see, the tabernacle of Moses represented God with us. It gave in the Old Testament this picture of Jesus as Emmanuel. And every piece of furniture spoke of something about the coming Messiah. And a few years ago, Carrie Houck, um, who, um, if you haven't met her, you should. She's amazing. She taught a class on the tabernacle here, and it was the first time that I began to discover just how rich the significance of every single detail truly was. I'll just give you one taste, and then I encourage you to look at this, look these things up for yourself, but in rabbinical tradition, it refers to the entrance of the outer court of the tabernacle as the way, and then the second portion of the tabernacle is the holy place. And the entrance to this section is called the truth. And then, and then the, the entrance into the holy of holies, by this point you could probably have guessed, is called the life. So when Jesus said in John chapter 14 verse 6 that I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me, He was pointing his Jewish audience to this revelation that the tabernacle represented and symbolized him and that the Ark of the Covenant that it housed was the spirit of God that dwelt inside him and there was no other door by which we could enter into eternal life. Now, fast forward some 400 years when David becomes king, and we know David was a worshiper at heart, and he wanted to bring the Ark of the Covenant out of obscurity and back into prominence and into Jerusalem so that he could provide a central place of worship for all of Israel. Now, the Ark was transported on this beautiful new cart, and it was brought out of the house of Abinadab towards Jerusalem. And although David had great motives in doing this, he had actually not familiarized himself with the scriptures that detailed how the Ark of the Covenant was meant to be handled and transported. So according to God's word, the Ark of the Presence of God, listen carefully, the presence of God was originally designed to be carried by man, specifically carried by a royal priesthood. I hope you're catching the symbolism here. So now, these men probably thought that God would be so pleased with their fancy new cart, but they became painfully aware of the fact that the presence of God was, being, um, it was not being handled properly. When the ark began to fall, a man by the name of Uzzah, he reached out his hand to steady the ark and was immediately struck dead. Which in Numbers chapter 4 verse 15, this warns, God warns them that this would be the case of anyone who touched the ark. Now David himself was actually very angry about what happened to Uzzah and very confused and he reacted in fear. So rather than continuing to bring the Ark of the Covenant all the way to the city of David, he actually took it aside to this house of Obed-Edom. Now as much as we wanna skip these passages that sometimes cause us discomfort, we have to seek to understand what God is truly teaching us through them. Because here we can learn such a valuable lesson on how the presence of God is supposed to be revered and it should also allow our hearts to be filled with such immense gratitude that the Jesus bore the consequences for our sin that once again we can meet face to face with a holy and righteous sinless God without these types of repercussions. Now, it wasn't until later that David discovered the laws of transporting the ark in God's word. And it was then that he finally understood why his first attempt was such a failure. So later, when he gets word that the house of Obed-Edom has been extravagantly blessed by God, he's ready to bring the ark all the way back to the city of David. So he does, and he brings the ark, the proper manner this time, with the Levitical priests carrying it upon their shoulders using those designated handles. And when it arrived, you guys probably know this story, David made sacrifices and he began to dance before the Lord with all of his might. And his wife did not appreciate his extravagant worship if you remembered, but he responded by saying, I will become even more undignified than this. And then we read in 2 Samuel, chapter seven, you can put it on the screen. And Nathan, or David said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. And then next verse, David explains in First Chronicles 28, two through three, that he had it in his heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord, like he describes and he made preparations for the building. But God said to him, you may not build a house for my name for you are a man of war and have shed blood. But thankfully in 1 Chronicles 22, 9 through 10, God assures David, behold, a son will be born to you and he shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. His name shall be Solomon. I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days and he shall be Shall build a house for my name. So after David's death, Solomon takes the throne and he goes on to build this beautiful temple according to the specific plans and funds that he was given from his father. And he completes the temple in approximately 986 BC. And then we read in 1 Kings 9 how God warns Solomon after the temple is finished that if he or his children turn away from the Lord and start serving other gods, then this beautiful temple it will become nothing but a heap of ruins. And sadly, we see in 1 Kings 11, how Solomon does in fact turn away from God later in his life. And in 2 Kings 25, the word of the Lord does come to pass and Nebuchadnezzar eventually destroys that beautiful temple of Solomon in 586 BC. So you see, we can only ride the wave of someone else's faith or even our own personal encounter from the past For so long. It's vital that every single generation sees the face of God for themselves. And not just once, but that they keep his gaze. Excuse me. So our parents' faith, our spouse's faith, or even our children's faith, it can't save us. We need our own personal, ongoing relationship with the Lord and his presence. Now, but despite Solomon's shortcomings, the Lord longed to dwell with his people. So he raises up someone else to establish the presence of the Lord once again for their generation. So in Haggai chapter 1, you can put it on the screen, we read how God used the prophet Haggai to speak to the Israelites. And it says, starting in verse 2, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, referring to the temple, lies in ruined? He goes on to instruct the people of God to bring offerings so that the temple may be rebuilt. And it was eventually finished in 515 BC and it's often called the restored temple or you'll hear it called the second temple or even Zerubbabel's temple because he was the one who was commissioned to build it. But the restored temple, it was actually built to twice the size of the original, but it did not contain the same beauty of Solomon's former temple. So it's, it was said that those who knew it in its former glory, they actually wept at the sight of it. However, those who saw the new one and never knew the old one, they actually rejoiced. But it says in Haggai chapter 2 verse 9 that the later glory of this house will be greater than the former. So this pointed them to a temple that will be far greater than what they had already experienced up to this point. And this brings us to John chapter two. So when Jesus enters into those temple courts, he finds the people treating his father's house like a marketplace and begins to overturn their tables and clean out the temple. It says, you can put it on the screen, "'His disciples remembered what was written, "'Zeal for your house will consume me.'" So the Jews said to him, "'What sign do you show us for doing these things?' Jesus answered them, "'Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up.'" The Jews then said, "'It's taken 46 years to build this temple, "'and you'll raise it up in three days.'" but he, it says, was speaking about the temple of his body. So just like Jesus alluded to when he said, "'I am the way, the truth, and the life,' he was revealing in no uncertain terms that his body was the new living temple. And then after Christ ascends back into heaven and after his resurrection, we know that the Holy Spirit then comes to fill us as Christ himself was filled. And Paul asks us in 1 Corinthians six nineteen, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have received from God? So we are now this temple which the presence of God dwells on earth and it's through us that a lost world they are exposed to the light of his face. So how do we practically then apply this to our lives? How do we become living temples for the Lord? We do this, and I have a a nice slide on here for us. Made them all ours so we could remember. We recognize his presence, respond to his presence, and release his presence. So we'll start by recognizing his presence Um, When Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River in John, he gave this testimony. I saw the spirit of God descending upon him from heaven like a dove. And it says it remained on him. Now in my time in ministry school, Pastor Bill Johnson gave this analogy that's always stuck with me. He said, imagine God's presence as that literal dove coming to rest upon your shoulder. Now if you wanted a dove to remain on your shoulder, You have to become so aware of every movement you make in order to keep that dove from flying away. And in the same way, our awareness of the presence of God that we carry, it should significantly impact how we're living our lives. I've heard it said that if the Holy Spirit had been removed from the early church, about 95% of their activities would have stopped. However, if the Holy Spirit were removed from some of our churches today, about 95% of our service would look the same. Because instead of encamping around the presence of God, we find ourselves often camping around a sermon or a program or a flashy musical performance. And thankfully, I do not believe that that is the case here. And I do believe that there is an awakening happening in the Western churches right now. But even if we are coming here every Sunday and we're encamping around the presence of the Lord truly, Psalm 27, verse four, you can put that on the screen. It says, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek his, him in his temple. So if you read that, it doesn't say visit the house of the Lord. It says dwell. Today, so many of us settle for these weekly visits in the presence of the Lord when God wants us to dwell in his presence all the days of our life. And it's in this place of abiding in his presence that we truly are transformed in his likeness. So how then do we recognize and remain in God's presence? The biggest thing is we remove these other distractions and we simply acknowledge him. Say hello, Holy Spirit. Through worship and thanksgiving, just delighting yourself in him. Through soaking and listening and by asking him questions about what he's doing right now or what he wants to do in this moment. By reading and listening to his holy word. So I have an example for you. of the time when I was learning to recognize his presence. So I was in my dorm room in college and I was studying with a friend and all of a sudden I got this terrible pain in the back of my head out of nowhere and I never get headaches. That wasn't common for me at all. And so in that moment, I turned aside and I actually asked the Lord, God, are you doing something right now? What is this? And I felt like the Lord tell me it was a word of knowledge. So I asked my friend, Do you happen to have a headache she says yes actually and I pointed right in my head where it was hurting and I was like is it right here she said yes so we prayed and immediately the pain left both of us and we praised God but I don't always recognize him I'll be honest but when I'm actively looking for him I'm far less likely to miss these types of burning bush opportunities where his presence can be released Next is we need to respond to his presence. So it's not enough to simply recognize that it's him. We have to respond to it as well. So I saw a quote the other day that said, the call on your life has just one prerequisite. You must answer it. So it's, it might not be easy, but it is simple. So I have a testimony of responding to the Holy Spirit. I was telling first service, it still makes me cringe a little when I think about it. But at this time or season in my life, I was in this great practice, which I challenge all of us, including myself, to get back into, where every day before I even put my feet on the ground to start the day, I would just say, hello, Holy Spirit, what do you want to do today? And I would listen to his voice. And then every moment throughout the day that I became aware of him, I would say the same thing. Hello, Holy Spirit, what do you want to do right now? And so I was in ministry school at the time, and we were in worship, and it's the beginning of worship, and I say, hello, Holy Spirit, what do you want to do today? And I hear him respond very clearly, I want you to dance on stage. (laughs) I'm just going to preface this with, I went to school with 1,400 other ministry students, and... I am not a dancer. Uh, By no means am I a dancer. I have no skills in that department. And so I began to cry. (laughs) I did not want to be obedient. I did not want to do this. And we had hour long worship sessions before our class would start. So this is at the beginning of worship. And it's like 45 minutes of me arguing with God. And it was so interesting because as I started arguing with God, this pain, like a literal pain developed in my left hip and I could feel the shooting pain and suddenly it hit me after 45 minutes, the story of Jacob wrestling with God or the angel of the Lord. And when he touched his left hip and I I realized what I was doing in that moment and I was like, I do not want to be wrestling with God. I know how this will end. I want to be yielded. I truly do, even though I didn't want to dance on stage. So I said yes, and I truly meant it. And immediately the pain left my hip, and I thought, oh no, I'm really going to have to do this now. So I go, I go to kind of like the gatekeeper of the service. And I'm crying and I'm telling her, I'm a terrible dancer, but the Lord told me I'm supposed to dance on stage. And I was praying that the, the host would say, you know, like, sorry, it's just not really appropriate or it's not the right time. But to my horror, she says, oh, don't worry, honey, this stuff happens all the time. Go on up. So I'm terrified now. And I'm pretty sure... I blacked out most of it, but I do remember at one point literally leaping through the air. (laughs) And it was definitely more of David's undignified style that I was going for and not so much the graceful. But I got off stage and I actually went into what I truly believe was one of the most powerful, profound encounters of my life with the Lord. And I had no idea that the the bondage in my life of the fear of man was so strong, and that's what the Holy Spirit was working on, and that moment actually was the first step to many that is setting me free, even to this day, of that fear of man and the, and exchanging it for the fear of the Lord. So there's so much power in simple obedience to the Spirit's promptings. Now, lastly. We must release God's presence. So God's presence, it isn't measured by being empty or full. It's actually measured by overflow. So releasing God's presence, it happens naturally when we're overflowing with the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit, he's in us for our benefit, to comfort and convict, but he's upon us and overflows out of us for the sake of the world around us. And we owe the world an encounter with a living God because it's our role here on earth as believers to establish the presence of God on earth in our generation like Moses and David and Haggai did. So we are called to be apostles. And I don't wanna be misunderstood here As Drew explained last week, um, there is a significant difference between an office of a prophet and the prophetic mandate upon every person's life. Similarly, there is a difference between the office of an apostle and an apostolic mandate upon every single believer's life. And in no way do we need to be concerned about titles, that somehow make ourselves equal to the original disciples because those apostles who walked and talked with Jesus and Paul, they are unique and completely set apart. But God's word does tell us in Ephesians 4.11 that Christ will continue to give to the church the five offices of the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, and the teacher for the sake of building up his church. So while we're not necessarily all gonna be called into one of those offices, we do need to be equipped in all those various ministries for the sake of the world around us. Now, the word apostle is actually very interesting. It wasn't even coined by Jesus, although we hear it so often in scripture. It was, it was not even used in the Old Testament. The word literally means sent one, and it's from the Greek word apostolos. And in the Roman Empire... When a territory was conquered by Rome, they would send an apostle who had great authority from the emperor to cultivate the culture of the newly occupied province to the Roman ways of life. So this way, when the emperor traveled to anywhere in his kingdom, he would feel like it was his own. So now as present day apostles we need to be establishing the presence of God under Christ's authority in places that are not in alignment with the values or practices of the kingdom of heaven. We're called to make it feel like home for our king. So some of the ways in scripture that we find to release his presence are simply through these ways. These are just some examples. There's so many more, but the spoken word is such a powerful way. So Jesus only said what he heard the Father saying. And it was through the spoken word that the entire world was created. So it was creative in nature and it releases the presence of God to change and influence the world around us. So we need to be people who are praying and declaring scripture that we are sharing words of knowledge and prophetic words, that we're seeking what the Lord is saying and being obedient to share it with others. Another example is an act of faith. So this is actually putting physical obedience to what God is calling us to. So an example of this, I was once seated next to a woman at a healing conference who was in a wheelchair for 12 years. So I was very intimidated because we were kind of the ministry team, but we all started praying for her and nothing was really happening or taking place necessarily. And then this person, this individual says boldly, I feel like the Lord wants you to try to step out of your chair. And as she begins to do that, strength just it comes to both of her legs and she starts walking on her own for the first time in 12 years so we were praising God and worshiping him but it was that act she had to put her faith to action in order to have that spiritual release and similarly a prophetic act um, is also a way that we can release his presence through obedience so a prophetic act is different only in that The desired result that you're seeking isn't always directly related to what God is calling you to do. So an example of this, um, there was one night I was dead asleep and I'm woken up by the Lord and I felt like he told me, this is so odd, I felt like he told me to get out of bed and jump and spin three times. You guys probably think I'm crazy at this point, but I was like, what are you talking about, Lord? But I just felt so strongly that I needed to be obedient so I get out of bed and I was like, something awesome better happen if I do this. And so I jump and spin three times, nothing happens. So I go to back to bed and I was a little embarrassed, but I was like, well, at least I was obedient. And then the next day, my roommate, she invited a friend over um, and she starts sharing her friend about her scoliosis and just how bad it is. And she shows us how she can't even bend to get her arms past her knees. Her back was so badly deformed. So we began to pray over her and just declare healing. And then my friend says, I feel like God is is saying you need to do this prophetic act. Feel like you're supposed to jump and spin three times. So I like didn't even have time to get the words out, but I was like, yes, do this, do that. And so she does. And immediately she goes to test it out. And she put both hands flat on the floor. And we just started weeping and thanking and praising God. Yes, give him a shout. So um, we're thankful for his presence and how he moves. Also, another example is simply touch. So I know we're all Pentecostals. So the idea of laying hands on someone, there's a purpose to it. God's presence is actually released as we lay hands on one another. The worship team can come join us up here. Another example we have is um, non-intentional ways that his spirit is actually released. So um, one time I was actually in my room and I was just soaking in the presence of the Lord um, and I had a roommate, not the same roommate, this is a different roommate, she knocked on the door And she was actually not super comfortable with the Holy Spirit, but she did, she did love the Lord, but she had just never been exposed to the Holy Spirit and was really timid and kind of turned off, honestly, by that. Um, But she knocked on my door, opened it and says, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted to check on you. It looked like there was smoke coming from out of your door and I just wanted to make sure you didn't fall asleep, you know, and a candle had fallen over or something And as she said that, I opened my eyes and like became aware that my room was filled with this like dense, dense fog as I was just soaking in the glory of his presence. And she said, would it be okay if I laid in here for a little while and prayed with you? I was like, of course. So she lays down and she actually went into a vision and had her first encounter with the Lord where she received a prophetic word and that had never happened to her before. She was so excited. So sometimes we're not even intentionally trying to release the presence of God, but it's just the overflow of our lives as we seek him. A couple other examples are shadows. It says in scripture that Peter's shadow healed people. Compassion talks about all the time, the compassion of the Lord being, it's a tangible gift that releases grace into a situation clothing. We read about Paul's handkerchief literally casting out demons. And the woman who grabbed just the hem of Jesus's garment was able to receive her healing. Lastly, I'll explain one more testimony, worship. Now this is such a powerful one. So one time there was a woman who came to an altar call for healing. And I went to go up and pray with her. And before I got to her, the Lord quickened me and he said, I don't want you to pray for her. I just want you to worship. And so I I came up to her and I said, I feel like the Lord really wants us just to worship. So immediately she just raises her hands and begins to weep before the Lord and we're praising him and worshiping him. And after about five minutes, I say, you know, what was it that um, you were seeking healing for? And can you tell me where it was and maybe rate your pain? She's standing there and she goes, oh, I can't raise my arms. And, and I was like, so God healed you? She's like, yeah, he healed me as soon as we started worshiping. Um, so sometimes we don't even intentionally seek out a healing necessarily, but just being in a place of worship, his healing presence is being released. So at this point, I wanna call everyone to a response. So if everyone in the room could stand to their feet and get ready to respond to the Lord this morning, So if you're sitting here today and you would say to yourself, I've never even made Jesus the Lord of my life, so how am I supposed to release his spirit or his presence on earth? And the truth is, we can't release his presence if we haven't received him ourselves. So if everyone would close their eyes and just bow their heads this morning, I want to give an invitation for anyone in the room who hasn't already to make Jesus the Lord of your life and to become a living temple for his Holy Spirit to dwell. Or even if you would say in this place, I've actually made that decision before, a long time ago or a while ago, but since then I've turned away from the Lord and it's time that I wanna rebuild or rededicate this living temple to God. Simply want you to raise your hand. I promise I'm not gonna call you out or do anything weird. I just wanna know who I'm praying with. Awesome, thank you. And if there's anyone online, there's a number that'll appear on the screen that you can text and you can let us know that you're making this decision today to dedicate your life to the Lord. So whether you raise your hand or not, you can pray this prayer quietly along with me. Jesus, today I choose to freely receive your forgiveness for my sins made possible only through Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross and his resurrection. And I choose to surrender my life to you so that I can be restored to a right relationship and become a royal priesthood and a living temple where your Holy Spirit dwells. Amen. So can we give a shout of praise for all the people who made that decision today? This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc.